Today is May 18th, 2021. Lumber prices are through the roof and may dampen an economic recovery. Biden's child tax credit is set to start in the middle of July. And an abortions rights case is set to hit the Supreme Court next term. I'm your host, Austin Taylor, and this is Split the Difference Podcast. Here we take a look at both sides of the political aisle as we try to bridge the gap between today's biggest issues. Remember, times may be divisive and we may not always agree. But together, we can stay level-headed, be reasonable, and always split the difference. Welcome back, Split the Difference friends, Split the Difference family. We have another fantastic episode for you here today. I know we're starting out. This is our first episode on our new schedule where we will be rolling out new episodes to you on Tuesdays and Thursdays going forward. I've noticed three times a week, I think is, uh, it's great. I mean, because yeah, you're getting caught up on current events for sure. But, uh, I I think that it hopefully will help to bring you better content. Uh, I will have time to actually curate the content in a, in a good way, uh, that works with my schedule. And hopefully it will allow you guys to be able to catch up and stay up to speed on the podcasts, on the episodes that we release, uh, every single week. So, uh, what we'll do is we'll go ahead and hop on in now to the first story of the day, story number one. So for our first story of the day, uh, as many of you maybe have heard or have actually experienced and had to deal with, lumber prices are absolutely skyrocketing. I mean, booming. And many are wondering if this is going to severely dampen the economic recovery that Biden has been hoping and praying for coming into 2021. So um, one of the things that a lot of people were not really sure or basically were were worried would actually happen, right, is a whole bunch of different uh a whole bunch of different commodities, a whole bunch of different things in different places would start to explode in prices as the economy kind of started to heat back up, right? I've been talking about this for months on the podcast. One of the things that I've been incredibly worried about is because of the huge injection of cash into the economy, which we'll also talk about in our second story of the day as well, but because of the huge injection of cash into the economy by the federal government, and honestly, the the fact that not very many people are actually worse off now than they were before the pandemic started, uh, a lot of different commodities and a lot of different prices are going to go up a lot as the economy starts to open back up and people basically have the finances and the means that which by which to go out and spend a whole lot of dough. So consumer demand is shooting up now as some of these COVID-19 restrictions start to go away, but the supply chain and a lot of different commodities is not able to keep up. Um, One of the great examples of this is actually lumber supply. So inflation um, in a lot of ways is kind of like the horrible thing that happens within a capitalist society. Uh, and it's all based upon, you know, the value of the dollar and how much a dollar can actually buy you. And it's all incredibly uh, intricately plays out throughout the supply and demand of various commodities and different things that go on. But lumber has been unbelievable. So over the past year and a half, commodity, the uh, commodity price for Lund- for lumber has gone up well over 400%. That is absolutely unbelievable. Um, So right now, this month, lumber hit an all-time high of $1,686 per 1,000 board feet. 
which is basically the way that they measure kind of the price of lumber, okay? That is a 406% increase uh, from the exact same time one year before and a 438% increase from its price just five years ago, okay? So just as the country is kind of coming out of this pandemic and opening up, all of these lumber prices have over have, have more than tripled, okay? Um, it, it's hilarious because plywood, which before was like one of the cheapest things that you could actually buy, uh, is so valuable that people are actually hoarding plywood in warehouses and keeping it all under lock and key because people are going in and stealing plywood from people's homes and from different businesses. Okay. So, uh, Larry Summers, who was the Clinton administration treasury secretary, um, is basically coming out and saying uh, that the country is, is about to experience the first real bout of rapid inflation since the 1970s, uh, when extremely high swelling costs undercut the values of people's wages and savings in extreme ways, um, and in a lot of ways kind of helped helped lead to the downfall of President Jimmy Carter. Um, he said this, inflation is the kryptonite of American politics. It doesn't matter what party you are, it destroys you. And that is 100% correct. And the unfortunate thing is that inflation actually ends up harming people on the lowest end of the economic ladder the most. Those also happen to be the people that were most adversely affected by the COVID-19 restrictions and the pandemic as a whole. We were able to see... We've talked about this a ton on the podcast before, but we're able to see that over the past year to really since the pandemic, year and a couple months since the pandemic started, the people that were affected and hit the hardest by the pandemic were your lower wage hourly workers, people working in service industries like restaurants and stuff like that, where oftentimes it's associated with lower wage type of working. Um, now the people that are going to be the most adversely affected by inflation are going to be the people at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder as well, because say you go in and you're, you, you know, you have a hundred dollars, right? And, uh, prices increase by 5%, right? Well, 5% on a hundred dollars is five bucks for somebody that has millions and millions and millions of dollars. That extra five bucks doesn't make all that much of a difference, right? But when your grocery budget at the end of the week, you're only spending 20 bucks or 50 bucks for an entire week worth of food, that makes a huge difference, right? I mean, that is the difference oftentimes between you being able to purchase something that you desperately need and you not having the money to actually afford it because wages are never going to grow at the same rate that a lot of these other different commodities are increasing right now. So there uh, are plenty of stories out there, basically all these people that are uh, desperately trying to get lumber in order to be able to build new houses, in order to be able to do home renovation projects, whatever it may be. The logging industry as a whole is extremely tightened. And a lot of it is because Every bit of these commodities are basically being squeezed. So let's hop in real quick and take a listen. This is Wall Street Journal. Uh, they did a really, really good video kind of explaining why all of this happened last year. So let's hop in and listen now. Here's how lumber prices climbed to records during the pandemic, who has profited, and why those who grow the trees haven't benefited at all. When the pandemic set in, sawmills shut down like many other businesses. Before the lockdown, it was shaping up to be a strong home building season. But when the global economy ground to a halt in 2020, new housing construction in the US plummeted. At the onset of the pandemic, lumber mills shut down, dealers liquidated their inventories, and speculators started shorting lumber futures, expecting prices to plunge. 
no one thought that there was a housing boom coming or a remodeling boom. Hunkered down homeowners remodeled in mass and low mortgage rates drove demand for suburban housing while restaurants raced to construct outdoor dining accommodations. Lumber and plywood started flying off shelves. The building boom lifted the share price of home improvement giants Lowe's and Home Depot ahead of the broader market. Wood was in short supply. Sawmills ramped up capacity but couldn't catch up, leading to a surge in prices. All right, so interestingly enough, so um, the other end of the supply chain, so if you think about the end of the supply chain, which is really kind of home builders, those are the people that oftentimes consume the vast majority of the lumber that is used within the United States. Uh, they have had to deal with incredible amounts of surging costs and extremely unreliable supply chains and markets. And they're, on average, the price to build a new home has risen $36,000 on average in the United States right now from one year earlier. And a lot of this is because home prices were kind of already starting to rise because of there was a really, really long-standing housing shortage uh, that happened after the Great Recession in 2008. Um, and that, that got squeezed even tighter during COVID-19 because a lot of people were now saying, all right, well, I don't want to go. I don't, I don't necessarily want to sell my house right now. I don't, this is incredibly, you know, unprecedented times as we have heard many, many times before. Uh, these are times that we haven't really seen. Let's go ahead and wait things out a little bit and kind of see what's happening. Well, by the time that, you know, the middle of last summer started to roll around and really into, you know, July, August, September, people were like, well, I, you know, if I'm working from home all the time, I can, I can go and move wherever I want, right? I, I don't have to be living in a city. I can go out and build a house in the country if I want to. So there was this gigantic home shortage. And then there were fewer homes for sale, especially right now, than there have been in decades, okay? On top of that, on top of lumber, uh, prices on things like garage doors, insulations, windows, like all of these things have, ridden, have risen just astronomically because all these people are sitting at home and they're either like, A, I want to go and build a new house because that would be great. I'm tired of being in the house that I'm in. Or B, I want to just redo a ton of stuff that's in my house. I didn't used to spend a whole lot of time here, but now I'm here all day, every single day. I want to go ahead and get that new deck that I always said that I wanted to get built. I want to go ahead and redo the bathroom right now because that would be really great. Um, so Jerry Howard, CEO of the National Association of Home Builders, said this. The fact is, if this continues, you will see the home building sector slow down and grind to a halt. This problem with lumber and other building material costs is sort of setting another potential perfect storm for housing to lead us into a recession. Um, so it's extremely interesting because right now, you know, Joe Biden is kind of trying to set the economy up in a way to absolutely boom, to explode. He's got, a, he's putting a lot of money in people's pockets. Everything is finally starting to open up and people are ready to go out and to swipe the credit cards. The problem is when the demand is through the roof for a lot of these different commodities and a lot of these different products, but there's not enough supply because the supply chain just isn't there, you start to see rapid inflation. And you're seeing it across a wide variety of different things. It's not just lumber. It's not just building materials and stuff like that. Gas right now on average is above $3 a gallon. It was trending up even before the Colonial Pipeline actually ended up getting attacked by malware about a week and a half ago. Uh, the prices on, on a lot of different foods and stuff in the grocery store have started to go up. And this, of course, is going to cause the, co the cost of living to go up further and further and further. Now, uh, good news is 
there are some ways for the United States government and monetary and fiscal policy in order to attack inflation and basically keep it down a little bit. But in order to do that, what they're going to have to do is raise the Fed funds rate. If you don't know what the Fed funds rate is, it's basically the, the rate that the federal government uh, it lends out and is able to, you know, it's very complicated, but it, it basically is the intraday banking interest rate, okay? And what that does is it kind of sets the bar for uh, a, a lot of the interest rates throughout the country, okay? So if the Fed funds rate, if the Federal Reserve increases that rate, you probably heard like in the middle of last year, Jerome Powell, who's the head of the Fed, uh, lowered interest rates down to zero, Right. That's what they're talking about. So Jerome Powell can now go through and raise that interest rate back up, which will, of course, make it more expensive to borrow. And that's exactly what you saw happen during the 70s leading up into the 80s. Back in the 1980s, in order to be able to fight back that rapid inflation, they were having to raise, trying to raise interest rates up. And in order to get a good interest rate on a mortgage, you were paying 12, 13, 14% on a mortgage. That's unbelievable. That's like mind blowing for us to even think about right now, right? Uh, and that's going to affect people's pocketbooks even more. So, you know, inflation is an incredibly unfortunate thing because it's something that ends up attacking and damaging the people on the lowest on the economic ladder more than anybody else in the economy, anybody else in the society. And it's incredibly unfortunate because all of this was easily predictable. Every bit of this. If I, sitting here on Split the Difference podcast, lowly old Austin Taylor, sitting here speaking over and over and over and over again about how this is going to happen and how the economy is going to end up being damaged as a result of all the spending that the government is doing, then you know that the economist in Washington had to know that that was, was going to happen, right? So it comes down to the kind of the question of, then why were they doing what they were doing? And uh, I think that's a great question that I would love many politicians to answer. So <laughs> we will have to see where all this plays out. Hopefully it doesn't end up damaging our economy so badly that by the time we get to the end of this year, the economy is in the, I mean, in the gutter. I really hope that doesn't happen, but we will just kind of have to see how everything plays out. So with all of that, that is the end of our first story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our second story, story number two. So for our second story of the day, Biden is planning on rolling on out his child tax credit, okay? So uh, these will hit Americans' banks, bank accounts sometime this summer. I think he's shooting for uh, July 15th. Uh, the IRS, the Internal Revenue Service, will provide a, quote, child tax credit in the form of a stimulus payment to families across the nation. Beginning July 15th, families that fall into a specific income bracket will receive a monthly payment for each child, okay? All of this is associated with and kind of falls underneath uh, the, the gigantic stimulus package that was passed at around $1.9 trillion, the American Rescue Plan that was signed into law in March. So Biden said this, here's the great news. You won't have to wait until your next year's tax return to get a break. I'm announcing today that on July 15th and on the 15th of every month thereafter throughout the year, you will get deposited in your bank account half of your tax cut at least $250 per child each month, a direct deposit into your account. So if you are a working family with two kids, you're going to get $500 a month into your bank account on the 15th of every month starting in July. So let's go ahead and hop in real quick. This is a Biden announcing all of this at the White House uh, yesterday. 
As everyone knows, I firmly believe, we firmly believe, the need to make our tax system work for the middle class. That's why I think we should ask corporations in the top 1% to start paying their fair share, and why we should crack down on millionaires and billionaires who escape taxes by cheating. But I also think we need to give ordinary families a break, a tax break, to help them with the cost of raising their kids. Most people don't know it, but for families with children, we, uh, we put that tax cut into the American Rescue Plan, which was signed not long ago. And I signed the tax cut into law in March. Ninety percent of the families, all middle-class, working-class families, will get this tax cut. It's a one-year cut that reduces your taxes by $3,000 a year for each child you have under the age of 18. Two kids, it's a $6,000 tax cut. And if those kids are under the age of six, they'll actually get $3,600 per child. So, as you file your taxes a day, know that your tax cut is coming. But this, here's the great news. You won't have to wait until your next year's tax return to get that break. All right. Um, so that's Joe Biden announcing it earlier today. Um, basically the idea behind it is he wants to be able to take money and put it into the pockets of people that he believes need it the most. And this is something that Biden has actually talked about extending through the year 2025 and potentially making it permanent. That's according to NBC news. Okay. So, um, According to CNN, under the American Rescue Plan, families can receive a credit totaling $3,600 for children under 6 and $3,000 for each one under the age of 18 for 2021. This is up from the current credit of up to $2,000 per child under the age of 17. The enhanced portion of the credit will be available for single parents with annual incomes up to $75,000, heads of households owning, or earning $112,000, and joint filers making up to $150,000 a year. So these were the exact same brackets they put in for whether or not you would receive the stimulus payment. Um, what is amazing is that uh, this is all coming in right now. Um, when the economy is opening up, right, and it's all based upon the Biden's claim that 88% um, of the children in the United States or roughly 38, 39 million houses will benefit from these child tax credits. Okay. The, all of it basically is this, uh, the, everybody is hurting. The pandemic has caused huge problems. The vast majority of people in the United States need help and the government should be the ones to help them. And we're going to step, stand out. We're going to step, you know, put our hand out and we're going to help these people. We're going to put money directly into their accounts. Okay. It is a dramatic change from the way that the government historically has, has helped the American people or whether or not you know, arguably the government should have the role of helping the American people. So, um, there are, are mixed reviews on this from both sides of the aisle. So the left side of the aisle is extremely happy about this. Okay. They are, you know, they're happy because when people get that $500 check into their account, they're going to know that that came from an, a democratically controlled Congress and a democratically controlled executive branch and the president. Right. <clears throat> and they're going to say, man, this $500, Per, you know, or this $250, $500 per kid, you know, it's going to be great, right? I need this. I need this. 
I like to have that money that hits my account, right? I like to be able to write off more taxes for my kids, especially if they're extremely young, right? And that's going to look very, very good for the Democratic Party. The right side of the aisle is totally against it. And the big problem that they keep pointing out over and over again is how is this going to be paid for? Now, Biden has come out multiple times and said that it will be paid for by raising taxes, right? The problem with raising taxes is raising taxes is... a going to be incredibly painful for a lot of people, right? There's going to be a lot of people that end up having a lot less money at the end of the year uh, if you decide to go ahead and raise taxes. Biden says that he wants to raise it on corporations, that he wants to raise it on the wealthiest Americans. So if you listen to that video that we played a few minutes ago, he basically said it's time for the wealthiest Americans to start paying their fair share, right? And this is a very, very common democratic like trope, like left side of the aisle always says, you know, these millionaires and these billionaires, they need to pay their fair share, right? The reality is the United States has the most progressive tax system in the entire world, meaning that the vast majority of the taxes that are paid in the United States come from people in the higher income bracket bands, right? The people that are making the most money pay by and large the vast majority of the taxes, okay? And so increasing those taxes even more is of course going to damage a lot of their pocketbooks. It's going to hurt a lot of business down the line. Uh, there's a, a pretty common economic thought that basically when you lower taxes, that's more money that businesses then have the option to inject into the economy. Well, the left side of the aisle is basically saying, we don't necessarily trust that those businesses are going to put that money back into the economy. We want the government to be the one putting that money back into the economy which is a, a difference between this kind of like Milton Friedman, libertarian, laissez-faire type of fiscally responsible government and this Keynesian economic theory that basically says uh, there needs to be an aggregate of money that's spent, a larger, a large aggregate of money spent in the economy. And if it's the government doing it, then that's fine. That's great, right? We want the government to be spending a ton of money, okay? So this bloats the federal budget. This bloats the amount of money that people have to be putting into the government. And, I, you know, personally, if you can't tell, I obviously think it's terrible economic policy. It leads to a lot of problems like inflation. It leads to a lot of problems like incredibly burdensome taxes. It leads to a lot of problems like people are not able to invest in their businesses and invest in the economy the way that they feel like they should. The government is incredibly inefficient. I don't think that it should be up to the government as to who's the one that get, you know, gets payments at the end of the year. I, I don't, I, I mean, I think that at the end of the day, people should be free to go out and choose to make money. However it is that they feel like they should make money. Now that's not to say there aren't people that fall through the cracks. Of course, there are people that are going to fall through the cack, fall through the cracks and there have to be some sort of, and I'm okay with some sort of, you know, bottom line social safety net that is able to help them in one way or another. I, I see and understand the need for that, but uh, putting, putting more taxes and more, uh, you know, putting a heavier tax burden on corporations and on individuals is, is not going to lead to more productivity in the economy. It's going to lead to a decrease in productivity in the economy and following coming out of a pandemic, uh, don't necessarily know that that is the best time and place to, to put in a tax hike. So we'll have to see what ends up happening. Um, 
It's apparently obvious that uh, the Democrats are basically running on and banking on putting money directly into people's pockets is going to be the way that we're going to be able to win office in the short term. People love to be able to receive money from the government. The problem is in the long term, and they recognize and see this as well, you have to pay for it. You have to pay for it somehow. Okay. And when it comes down to it, eventually the government's going to run out of money. And I know that's crazy for us to think about because it's the United States government, but it is a fact. Eventually, they, the, you know, the piggy bank's going to be cracked open and there's not going to be any more left in there. So um, with all of that having been said, that is the end of our second story of the day. Let's go ahead and hop on into our third story and last story. Story number three. So for our third story of the day, and we'll cover this one relatively quickly because it's actually something that's going to be taking place uh, towards the end of the year. But a Mississippi uh, abortion law that has been under fire from the left for a long time uh, is set to have a showdown in the Supreme Court, most likely in the fall, probably sometime around October or November, because the Supreme Court agreed on Monday to consider a major rollback of abortion rights, okay? So um, the idea is this Mississippi law um, is, is very restrictive, it's very restrictive to abortions and basically what, what women are allowed to do now. So the Mississippi abortion law basically prohibits most all kinds of abortions after the 15th week of presidency. And the reason why the 15th week was important was because that was the time, that was the point in time in which uh, a fetus can survive or a baby can survive outside of the womb. So once it hits 15 weeks, uh, we have the, t the technology now in healthcare to be able to keep that baby alive most all of the time, uh, and nurse it to basically a full born stat full, full, like baby newborn, um, by the time that it would roll around to nine or 10 months. Um, so the Mississippi law had been, had been attacked by the lower courts multiple times. It was viewed as unconstitutional or basically that it was, it was going against Supreme court precedents in Roe versus Wade. Uh, and so for several months and months, uh, the case was put off. So Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, she was an abortion rights proponent, so she was a bit more left-leaning. Uh, she, you know, was against this law and very vehemently so. Um, and she passed away just before the court's new term began last October. And if we remember... Uh, Trump was able to squeeze in Justice Amy Coney Barrett onto the Supreme Court, tilting the Supreme Court to an extremely conservative leaning now. Uh, Amy Coney Barrett is arguably one of the more outspoken um, judges that are on or jurors on the Supreme Court that uh, against abortion. So she has she has very publicly made her opinion known that she is not a fan of abortion at all. Um, she is currently one of three appointees that was actually made during President Donald Trump's term uh, in office. Uh, the other were Neil, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Both of them uh, voted to dissent last year to allow Louisiana to enforce restrictions on doctors that could have closed two of the state's three abortion clinics. So the idea is basically... Uh, this law could be sent up to the Supreme Court in around in and around October or November, and the Supreme Court could actually have the opportunity to vote uh, and say whether or not it's okay for that abortion law to exist. If they did, it would change the landscape completely across the country on probably one of the more hot-button topics uh, over the past 50 years. Um, 
So uh, the Mississippi law was enacted in 2018, but was blocked after a federal court challenge. Uh, the state's only abortion clinic remains open. Uh, the owner has said that the clinic uh, does abortions up to 16 weeks. So uh, the idea is basically Mississippi has only one abortion clinic in the entire state and that they do abortions up to 16 weeks. Uh, so the, the whole reason why this case or why this law was made at all was so that it would get sent up to the Supreme Court. It's plainly obvious, right? Like conservatives want to be have realized that they're not going to be able to win the abortion fight through the legislative branch where it should be being taken care of. But instead, they're going to send it to the Supreme Court. They're going to send it to the judicial branch because now they have a conservative majority. And if they can get all of these laws, you know, laws in a couple of different states, which they've tried it in a couple of different states, Louisiana, Texas had a law very similar to the, very, very similar to the one that's in Mississippi right now. Um, and, you know, they're hoping that all of these laws will basically be challenged in federal courts, lower courts, and then they can just appeal it on up, send it right up to the Supreme Court. And hopefully if they have a conservative majority there, then whatever the Supreme Court says goes. The buck has to stop somewhere and it stops at the Supreme Court. So the central question around the case uh, that most people are kind of pointing out is basically about viability. So whether or not a fetus can survive outside of a woman at 15 weeks. Um, so... The abortion clinic in the case that they actually uh, submitted against uh, this law in Mississippi presented evidence that viability is impossible at 15 weeks. And the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals said that the state, quote, conceded that it had identified no medical evidence that a fetus would be viable at 15 weeks. Um, so uh, the, the Mississippi law would allow exceptions to the 15-week ban in cases of medical emergency or severe fetal abnormality. Um, doctors found in violation of the ban would face mandatory suspension or um, revoking of their medical license. So it's an incredibly strict, uh, and it's also a, it, it, it's a law that, would, that would, it would change a lot. It would change a lot in the abortion landscape. So um, the left is furious about this. Obviously, the right is cheering it. A portion of the right is cheering it. The far more conservative side, uh, evangelical conservative Republicans are extremely happy about this. They've been wanting to fight abortion laws, fight abortion, uh, I mean, for years and years now. Um, and a lot of people think that banning abortions altogether is is one thing, one way to be able to stop and kind of end the practice completely. Um Personally, I do not see the abortion of uh, this law actually staying, uh, being upheld in the Supreme Court. I would be very surprised by it. Uh, the reason why is because in a lot of ways, uh, it would be kind of rolling back Roe versus Wade, which I don't think is likely to happen based upon, uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh being on the bench. Uh, I don't think that either of them would vote, would vote to, uh, significantly roll back Roe versus Wade. Uh, I would be very, very surprised by that. Amy Coney Barrett, I think likely would vote to uphold this law. Um, but this is also incredibly similar to a law that was struck down by the Supreme Court coming out of Texas, I believe in 2016. Uh, it's extremely similar. They basically put a, a an abortion ban on anything after a certain amount of weeks. I think it was 14 or 15 weeks. And the Supreme Court was basically like, yeah, no, sorry, you can't do that. Um, the Supreme Court was not as conservative as it is now. I believe it was a... Uh, when, at the time when that Texas law ended up rolling around, I believe it was a five to four conservative majority. So, and Neil Gorsuch actually, I think, voted uh, against that law being upheld. So, 
I would be, I'd be very surprised if this actually ended up making it uh, through the Supreme Court and they said that the law was constitutional and that it was okay. Uh, but, you know, you never know. This could, I mean, significantly change uh, the landscape of abortions throughout the entirety of the country and, you know, I think probably further divide the two parties uh, in a lot of ways that would probably not be extremely beneficial. So with all of that, that is the end of our third story of the day. Uh, let's go ahead and hop on in to our last segment, my favorite segment, something that made me smile. So something that made me smile this week is actually a book that I picked up and started reading. Uh, Y'all know that I like to read a little bit. It's always fun to get a good book. And I started reading the second book in the Outlander series by Diana Gabaldon, okay? I don't know if you guys have heard of it. I think it has a Netflix series out as well, maybe. I don't know. I haven't watched a Netflix series, but the books are very good. So I read the first book last year, and I'm in the middle of two extremely long, extremely long and complicated books right now. So I was like, I need something that's a little bit of a lighter read, something that's kind of fun. So I picked up the second book, and it has been so Good. If you guys have never heard of the Outlander series, you totally should pick it up and read it. It's like this weird historical fiction that's got all these crazy different parts running around through it, and the characters are extremely well developed, and you get to know them well. She's a fantastic author. I mean, she writes very, very vividly, a lot of attention to detail. I think that y'all would really enjoy it. So go and check out that book series uh, if you've never heard of it or if you've never read it, because I think you may very well enjoy it. So with all that, that is the end of our show today. Thank you so much, as always, for stopping by and for checking us out. Remember, we're going to do our best to stay level-headed. We are always going to be reasonable. And of course, we're going to split the difference. This is Austin Taylor. Thank you for listening to Split the Difference Podcast, written, recorded, and hosted by Austin Taylor. If you're interested in getting in touch with me on Instagram, you can find me at Split the Difference Podcast. I'm on Facebook and YouTube at Split the Difference and on my website at splitthedifference.com. Production for the intro and outro music done by Rosewood Records Recording Studio. If you're interested in booking or learning more about them, you can reach them on Facebook or Instagram at Rosewood Records SC or on their website, www.rosewoodrecordssc.com.